Open with me to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. And as you're getting there, you'll notice that it has an interesting superscription before the text begins. There are 150 psalms, and this, Psalm 92, is the only one that's designated for the Sabbath. Do y'all see that? Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. In Psalm 91, which um, I actually preached last year, we saw that God sings a song of hope over people threatened with danger, spiritual warfare, physical danger, threatening of their own lives. So Psalm 91 is God singing a song of hope over his people. Psalm 92 is God's people singing a song of hope back to him. A song of gratefulness back to our God. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump right into Psalm 92. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I do pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts as we consider it. I do pray, Lord, for these dear people who have gathered. Lord, as they come to this room with many things on their hearts and their minds, Lord, I pray that your psalm, your word, would be a balm to their soul. Lord, for me, I do pray, Lord, that I would be nothing more than your child and do nothing more than teach your word. Thank you so much for that freedom. And I thank you, Lord, that you are with us. When we gather in your name, you are with us. And Lord, today as we talk about worship and rest, the simplest, simplest rhythms of the Christian life, Lord, I pray that you would bless us. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Right, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is God's word. So to observe the Sabbath, to observe Shabbat, is to stop to cease, to rest. Instituted in the garden when God rested on the seventh day and formalized in the law of Moses, the concept of Sabbath rest shaped every part of Israel's life. 
The fourth commandment is to be remembered. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath year meant rest for the land every seven years. The land would receive rest. And the year of Jubilee that we read about in Leviticus 25, seven times seven, 49, the year of Jubilee was that the entire people would receive rest and reset. If someone had fallen into poverty and had to sell off their land and possessions in the year of Jubilee, they would receive it back. Those who had become indentured servants so another person would be set free. Jubilee is a remarkable concept in the Old Testament, but I find it interesting and a little sad. We don't have any biblical record of Israel ever observing it. I'd be very interested, you historians among us, to look up to see if we have any historical record of it being observed. But what a gift! Not only a weekly rest, not only every seven years, but every 50 years. Stop! (laughs) People, stop it! (laughs) Rest. Be still and know that He is God. The Sabbath was God's institution of rhythm and rest and worship meant for the thriving of the people of God. And so, the Sabbath functions as the center of our lives before God, a weekly reintegration and reset for His glory and for our good. Now, remember, we've said it a couple of times. In fact, Brian brought it up a couple of weeks ago. Book four of the Psalms, which this is right at the beginning of, is particularly built around this idea of the reorientation of the people of God after they've been in exile, right? They've been through a terrible trauma, and they are trying to reorient. They're trying to make sense of the world, and book four helps them reorient. I believe it's right and good for us to ask in light of this psalm, how does the Sabbath reintegrate us? How do rest and worship reintegrate our souls? How does rest rebuild us? How does our worship shape us? What determines the liturgy of our worship? And here's the thing, everybody has a liturgy, not just the liturgical churches, right? If you have no plan, you still go about worshiping God, and that is the liturgy. Really, and what is the liturgy of our lives as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices in spiritual worship, like we read about in Romans 12? How does rest reintegrate us? How does the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, today, this worship service? So my hope this morning is for us to rejoice in Sabbath goodness and rest with Sabbath perspective. Just two things today. Rejoice in Sabbath goodness and rest with Sabbath perspective. So first, how do we rejoice in Sabbath goodness? I believe this song for rest and worship on the Sabbath reveals four characteristics of rest and worship on the Sabbath. Let's look, look with me at verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, just look with me at that, those first three words. It is good. This phrase should be familiar with us when we think about being recreated and when we think about rest. Genesis 1, 31, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. 
There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It is good. From the very beginning, Sabbath is given to creation as a covenant ordinance. We've talked about this before. A gift from God alongside work and intimacy. These three things he gave us in the garden, right? Because made in God's image, he works, so we work. Made in God's image, he rests, so we rest. Made in God's image, he lives in intimacy, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we do the same. The psalm shows us, as is clear throughout Scripture, that the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is not only for rest, but for corporate worship, a delight for those who would enjoy it. And this rest and worship is so good that Scripture describes it as perpetual. Listen to Exodus 31. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Did y'all hear that? The Sabbath is a sign forever of the covenant God has made. But let's ask this question, what is good about the Sabbath? What is good about rest and worship? Look at verse 1 again. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Let's stop there. We rejoice in Sabbath Sabbath goodness with gratefulness. We rejoice in Sabbath goodness with gratefulness. It is good to be thankful, to give thanks to God. As God has spread a benediction, a good word over His creation, today we respond. Our worship is the fruit of that grows from the roots of gratitude as we live before a good God. Let me say that one more time. Our worship is the fruit that grows from the roots of gratitude as we live before a good God. Paul David Tripp puts it this way, thinking about gratitude. Every day of your life, you will find reasons to complain. Every day, you will have reasons to be thankful. These two themes, complaint and gratitude, pull at the heart of each of us. They form fundamentally different ways of viewing the world because they're rooted in fundamentally different ways of viewing yourself. Do you find it easier to complain than to give thanks? Is grumbling the ambient noise of your existence? Are you easily irritated and quickly impatient? Or... Do you look at your world and find yourself blown away at the many reasons you have every day to give thanks, humbled by the myriad of things that you enjoy, that you could never argue that you deserve? If you have placed yourself at the center of your world, the small confines of your wants, your needs, your feelings, then you will live with an entitled attitude and consequently will have constant reason to complain. But... If you humbly admit that as a sinner you deserve nothing, that every good thing in your life is an undeserved blessing, 
you will find reasons to be grateful everywhere you look. And listen to this, hone in on this. This is where corporate worship helps profoundly. The regular gathering of God's people for worship serves to shift your meditation from complaint to gratitude by reminding you of who you really are and confronting you with the beautiful and faithful mercy of God towards you. I had to put this into practice myself, even getting ready for this sermon this week. As some fears started to rise up, I remembered and was told by someone else, some wise biblical counsel, to look to the box that I keep right in front of my window. So if you go in my office, I have this small little chest. It was actually my grandfather's humidor. It has like, it's like lined with copper on the inside. And I have this habit, never really thought much of it, but I would just throw thank you notes into it. And this week, in preparation for this sermon, I simply opened up the box, and I pulled out those thank you notes, and I started to read through them. And I got to one that was in a blue envelope with some blue construction paper on it, and I pull it out, and it's the handwriting of about a first grader, and I just start losing it. (laughs) Any anxiety I was feeling literally melted out of my body in the form of tears. And as a kid who's a senior hire here at... (laughs) Redeemer now, but this is when he was in elementary school, and it just said, said, thanks for being my teacher. I needed that, gra- I needed that gratitude <laughs> for my own gratitude's sake, to face the fears that I was experiencing. Friends, do y'all get it? Do y'all hear me? It's like in Joshua 4, when they pass through the river, and God says, I want you to stack up 12 stones so that when your children come along and they say, what are these stones for? What are they going to do? They're going to recount the good things that God has done. Do y'all see how gratitude in worship shapes the, the very way our brain is engaging the world? I had to do this myself. The beautiful thing about praise and thanksgiving is that we do not send good vibes of gratitude into the universe, as some might suggest, right? We've talked about this. Even the American Psychological Association has studied that feeling gratitude puts you in a better brain state, and they recommend you start your day with gratitude. It's very good, but we direct our gratitude somewhere. It's not just general feelings of gratitude. It's not just the power of positive thinking. We are directing our gratitude to a source, a person, the giver of good gifts. And friends, please don't mishear me. The discipline it takes in life to be thankful through difficult circumstances is no joke and should never be prescribed lightly. Some of you are experiencing things that I can't even put into words. I'm not lightly saying, just be thankful. That is not what I'm saying. However, thankfulness is the good, true, and genuine genuine response of someone who sees and remembers what God has done which opens our eyes to what He is doing and what He will continue to do. Do you see it? It opens the way for us to see what God is already doing and what He will continue to do. So, the Sabbath is good, and the Sabbath is grateful. Let's keep reading. Next, we see and we rejoice in Sabbath goodness with music. Look with me at verse 1 again and at verse 3. Sing praises to your name, O Most High. Jump down to verse 3. To the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. This good thanksgiving of worship and rest is musical. 
The word mizmor, which we translate as psalm, is actually translated into Greek as to pluck, as on the strings. Isn't that interesting? This points to the inherent musical quality of the psalms, which has sadly been lost a bit as many Christian traditions utilize language from the psalms and their songs, but don't often connect those songs to particular psalms. We need to know where our words are coming from. This is the songbook of Scripture. And we don't have to sing them word for word, right, to music that was set 200, 300 years ago, but we do sing these words. In so many of the songs that we sing at Redeemer, we sing these words. Now notice, he, said, he names particular instruments here. Verse 3, the lute, the harp, and the lyre. These were instruments of the time. Some even used by the pagan nations around Israel. Isn't that interesting? That that did not disqualify their use in Israel's worship just because other people used them? I find that fascinating. They represent the musical language that the people spoke. Now, if we turn to Psalm 33, we'll see that it tells us to play skillfully on the strings. So yes, excellent in music is a priority for the worship of God, for sure. But for whom? Who is that excellence for? Is it for us? Our aesthetic preferences, what we like to hear? Not unto us. Not unto us, but unto you, Lord, be all glory and honor. Musical worship, then, is not entertainment. It's not performance. But what is it? Look with me at verse 2. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Musical worship is a full-bodied declaration of God's chesed, His covenant love and loyalty. And so Sabbath rest and worship is good. It is grateful. It is a musical declaration of God's work. Rest and worship is good. Rest and worship is grateful. Rest and worship is musical. Next, we rejoice in Sabbath goodness with delight. Friends, it's delightful. Look with me at verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. It would be sufficient to praise God through music with thankful hearts simply because the Sabbath is good. But the psalmist here, you notice, goes further. We gather here not just out of habit, nor just out of duty, though those things do reveal our character and our priorities. Friends, we gather here out of delight. We gather here out of delight. The psalmist stands in appreciation and awe of what God has done. Duty only sustains us for so long. Right? You've experienced that. Duty will only sustain you for so long and can remain divorced from devotion. Habits are broken when new habits are formed. But delight? Delight keeps us coming back. If we come back to worship week after week for the music or the prayers or the preaching or the community, we will not sustain. You will not sustain. No church in its activities can sustain what only the character and work of God is meant to sustain. 
This is how the Sabbath reorients you. This is how the Lord's Day shapes us. God calls His people together, and together they recount the work of God. Friends, we tell the story every single week, don't we? It's the same story. We tell it to one another when we gather in small groups and large groups. We tell it from the pulpit. We tell it in our prayers. We tell it in our songs. We tell it in our sacraments. We just keep saying the same story that we delight in, the good news of the gospel. So the Sabbath is good, grateful, musical delight in the work of God. If you don't remember anything else from today, and that's totally fine if you don't, Remember that the Sabbath is the good, grateful, musical delight in the work of God, what He has done. I've often said that Israel's number one problem, as we read through Scripture, if we could diagnose their main problem, is the issue of forgetfulness. Over and over again, God comes to them to remind them of what's true, and each time they keep forgetting. And what weekly repetition for us does is remind us again and again and again that we have a song of hope, friends. We have a song of hope. And so we gather to sing it each and every week. In Psalm 91, like I said, God sings a song of hope over His people threatened with danger. Psalm 92 is our response, singing back to Him with one another. It's the call and response of faith hope, and love. The call and response of a people and their beloved king. That's a call and response I want to be a part of. That's a song that I want to sing. So worship looks like the call and response of a true king and his people, and it's more than the sum of its parts, okay? Worship is more than the sum of its parts. I delight in hearing the word of God preached week in and week out by my brothers, the other pastors here at Redeemer. But friends, good preaching is not why I'm here, (laughs) and it's not why you're here. I love our music team, the choir, the psalms, hymns, and spiritual old and new songs of the church. Gosh, they're fantastic, but they are not why I'm here, and they're not why you're here either. Most Sunday evenings, my wife and I meet with our growth group in our home, and we share a meal, we share the good and the bad of our lives, and we pray for one another. It's a delight. But that community is not why I'm here, and it's not why you're here. I could go on and on and on. We could talk about why the church is amazing and areas where we need to grow and ways in which we flat out failed. Not just the church universal, but this one. We could go on and on and on, but we are here. Why? Because God has called a church out of the wilderness. He has called a people out of the wilderness. He's told us to stop and rest and worship Him. And so we delight in this good, grateful, musical delight in what He has done in our lives and pray that He would continue that. We rejoice in Sabbath goodness. Next, we see in the psalm that we can rest with Sabbath perspective. We've rejoiced in Sabbath goodness, now we rest with Sabbath perspective. How can the Lord's day give us perspective? This psalm gives perspective on both the fate of the wicked and the fate of the righteous. 
So first, let's look at the fate of the wicked. Look with me at verses 5 through 11. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high. Your enemies shall be scattered. Verse 10, but you have exalted my horn like the wild ox, poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Reading this, we might ask alongside Job in Job 21, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Why do they do so well, the evil in this world? This psalm acknowledges that even though people will do great evil, sometimes even in the name of God, they are doomed to destruction. Now, look with me at verse 6. It says, the stupid man cannot know. Stupid here might be a slightly misleading translation, as this could more helpfully be translated as brutish or something like that. What do I mean? This has nothing to do with mental capacity. This has to do with what a person does with their mental capacity. Do you all see the difference? That's what we're talking about here when this we translate this as stupid. Not mental capacity, but what a person uses their mental capacity for. Spurgeon puts it this way, a person may be a philosopher, yet be such a brutish being that he will not own the existence of a maker. The unbelieving heart, let it boast as it will, does not know, and with all its parade of intellect, it does not understand. A man must either be a saint or a brute. He has no other choice. Friends, there are millions upon millions of kind, intelligent people who disregard both the love and the holiness of God. Made in the image of God, they tragically become animal-like only in the sense that without God, life begins and ends with nothing outside of life itself. Do you see that? Life is entirely self-referential if we're not living before God. A self-made, self-referential, existential life is one that forsakes the honor and dignity of living as a beloved child and resting in His design for our lives. But let's not just look outside of us. Let's, let's look here. Let's turn our eyes inward. How often do you and I become practical atheists? Acknowledging God... But living day in and day out as if he doesn't exist. As if he doesn't exist. And I'll tell you all this, my prayerlessness at times reveals my insatiable desire for autonomy. (laughs) To be my own. To belong to myself. To be responsible for myself. How freeing is it to quit fighting for my autonomy and start resting in my utter (laughs) dependence. How many of you have discovered your complete dependence by coming to the end of yourselves? You don't have to raise your hands, but you're welcome to if you want to. I'm there right now. If you do not believe today, please do not hear me saying something I am not saying. This is not a flippant disregard of the, by the psalmist of those who do not agree with him. This is simply another example in Scripture of a simple fact of life. There are only two ways to live. 
There are only two ways to live. We can live in the light of the way of Christ or in the darkness of our own way. Friends, I want to invite you into Sabbath rest. I want you to come and rest. It's the invitation I want to make to you today. I want you to become a child of God, not because your new siblings are going to be so great, because let's be honest, we're probably not going to be that great. But I want you to be a child of God because God calls you to rest. This life was not meant to be lived without worship. You will worship something. I want you to begin worshiping Christ today if you don't know Him. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. We see a transition here. The psalmist praises God for his transcendence and looks forward to the day when God will execute justice against evildoers. Interesting for a psalm for the Sabbath, right? Praying for the downfall of the evil people. Christians, this should be comforting on the one hand and really humbling on the other. Comforting that the evil done to us will be dealt with, but humbling in that I was an enemy of God. I deserve to be scattered. There's not enough goodness in me for God to spare me from justice, yet through Christ I am somehow spared. I can't say anything to that besides hallelujah. I was spared. I should have been counted among the evil. The Sabbath, this Sabbath perspective is a reminder to my soul of where I would be save for the grace of God. I would be counted among that number, but I'm not. The Sabbath day, which for Israel was Saturday, was Jesus' darkest day. Think about it. Good Friday, painful, terrible death. Saturday, darkness, separation from His Father. His Father, our Father, allowed His one and only Son to be tormented and killed. Why? How? Because of the joy set before Him. Because of the joy set before Him. Friday and Saturday could be hell because justice would be accomplished and the way to heaven opened on Sunday. That's why Friday and Saturday could be hell for Jesus. Because justice was being accomplished. The seismic shift of the most fundamental institution of Judaism from one day, Saturday, to another, Sunday, was due to the earthquake of Sabbath wrath, Sabbath justice, and subsequent peace. This had to happen. We cannot enjoy peace with God if there is not first war against sin and wickedness and abuse of God's image done to us and through us. Friends, y'all know that war has to be waged. And it has been waged. That war was God's to fight, and He fought it on the cross and won it in the resurrection. Now our Sabbath rest means acknowledging that on the one hand, we act in this world according to the character of God. But on the other hand, we leave to God what belongs to Him. Oh, the mystery of this. We live in the mystery of the Sabbath, that we rest when it seems like there's so much to be done. Because God is at work. 
Friends, do y'all hear me? God is about the work of justice. It is finished, and it will be finished. Friends, if you feel angry about what's going on in our world or even in your own world, it's telling you something about what you value. Underneath that anger could be fear of what might be. But even deeper than that, there may be a sadness that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Does that make sense? Your anger might be a bit of a barometer telling you about what you care about. The psalmist lets that protest, that grief, be directed to the right place, the throne room of someone who has, is, and will do something about it. He's powerful enough to do something about it. So may we do the same. Bring those petitions to God. Rest and worship knowing that He has it. Finally, we rest with Sabbath perspective on the fate of the righteous, not just the wicked. We see what will happen to the righteous ones. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of God. When the righteous flourish, notice where they flourish. Did you see it? The righteous flourish in the house of God. They flourish in the house of God. Worship is meant for our flourishing. It roots us. Yes, the Christian life is so much more than just what happens here on Sunday morning. But Sunday morning is not tangential to the real Christian life. It is actually what shapes the Christian life, nourishes the Christian life, empowers the Christian life. Look at verse 12 again. For the original audience, Psalm, uh, palm, palms and cedars would represent dignity and stability, okay? That's what they would stand for in this, this type of poetry. So what do we mean when we say dignity, when we talk about palms and cedars, this strength of a strong tree? Dignity means worship, word, and fellowship affirm who we are as image bearers. How do we have dignity in this place, in this worship service, and with this people? We find our place in the house of God. We find our place. We are not orphans. We know who we are in this house. We have a name here. We have a future here. It's found here with the people of God. Next, stability. In shifting thoughts and feelings and circumstances of life, our roots hold. Our roots hold. Christ roots us and grounds us in love right here. Weekly, strengthening those roots. Like Jesus as a lost little middle schooler in Luke chapter 2, may we be found in the temple, found in the house of the Lord, rooted in the courts of God. The Sabbath is one means of God's shelter, a place of perspective as we remember and encounter evil in this world. Next, look with me at verses 14 and 15. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. So the righteous ones of God, those made righteous by the free gift of grace through Jesus, friends, they've got staying power. They're going to last This song for the Sabbath looks at the tail end of life 
and rejoices at God's people thriving for years into old age, sustained through all kinds of trouble. I'll tell you, one of the sweetest times of ministry for me was when I preached Psalm 91 last summer, the the immediate chapter to this one. I lost count of how many 60, 70, and 80-year-old saints walked up to me after that service and gave testimony to the work of God in their life through Psalm 91. They would walk up and say, my niece wrote a song for that, and we sang it at my husband's funeral. We sang that at my sister's funeral. I read that to my children every single night growing up. And it was one after the other after the other. And it was our older saints. And there are very many of them who have deep roots in this congregation. I was struck by it. Now, I'll tell you, I've spent the most, most of my adult life teaching kids. And there is nothing like teaching kids, right? You're teaching them things for the first time. There's an enthusiasm. There's a lack of cynicism there. And they, can, they are coming to faith for the first time. It is a delight and it is a joy. But teaching people who have forgotten more than I've ever known, they've forgotten more than I know. That's an honor. Talking with people who have been through things I can't imagine and hearing them thankfully declaring that God has been good through it all, I will likely remember that sermon for the rest of my life, and not because of anything I said. It's the impact of the Word of God that He left on saints who have flourished rather than floundered, who bear fruit from mature branches. These are people who, with perspective, can declare that there is no unrighteousness in God, like we see at the end of verse 15. Friends, I imagine you're like me, I want to be the kind of person who finishes well. We want to finish well, this life well. However long we have on this earth, we want to finish well. And church, I know, and I want you to know, that the good, thankful, musical delight in God's work will root us in love, that we might thrive in the house of God into the future. A weekly rooting a weekly grounding, a weekly reminder. Our New Testament Scripture reading reminded us that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He is our rest. And friends, you also have a Sabbath rest. 52 times a year. How amazing is that? 52 times. Hebrews says strive for it because it's a rehearsal for our heavenly rest, right? It's a small picture of what the kind of rest we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth, that rest from sin and toil and pain and death. At our rehearsal dinner, Kristen wore a green dress that I gave her um, the day we got engaged. Uh, She didn't walk down the aisle that day. My groomsmen were in t-shirts and were playing pranks on me during the rehearsal, right? The crowd was much smaller It was much more laid back. But that rehearsal and that rehearsal dinner, right, was beautiful. And it was necessary. Friends, this is our rehearsal dinner. 
This is the wedding feast of the covenant family. The real thing is coming soon, but for right now, we rehearse and we remember what we're looking forward to each week as we rest and worship. This is the wedding feast of the covenant family. This is delighting in God's work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift that it is to worship. And Lord, it is hard for us to rest. Our culture doesn't appreciate rest. But Lord, I pray that we would lay our burdens down. That we would lay our deadly doing down at the foot of the cross. Thank you for these dear saints. Thank you for knitting them together as the body of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would delight in your goodness. Thank you for this gift. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen.